Welcome to Machine Learning. It's June, and uh, this is a recap of things that happened this week. Did a lot of work in Flutter, and uh, worked again with uh, asynchronous. One of the uh, features to Flutter is that everything runs asynchronously non-blocking threads and so took a little bit of uh, thought to get my UI to to uh, uh, work correctly with a blocking asynchronous thread and the way you do that is on your future function you set it as an async and um, then you await the call. So in the case where I had an inherited widget, which is my uh, API, that's where I could make all my RESTful calls, I had to await that. And so, because I need to get the response back before sending it to the UI. And if you don't await it, then the UI would get back a, a value but that value would be the value at the uh, before the inherited widget restful call return. So that was kind of throwing me off, and I knew that that was the case. Uh, but when I was programming, I I guess I spaced off on it. So it took me a little while to realize that was what was happening, and then I put a weight on it, and it worked fine. But uh, one thing I did realize is that I used a future builder in my material application. So you have a, in Flutter, you start with a main, and main, the main calls an application widget. That's your root widget. And, uh, and that application widget then calls a material widget, a material app. And that is a specific type of widget that you can set your your theme um, so you can download you in your pubset yaml you can set a uh, you can get the google theme and you set that parameter as a dependency and then you can import the library into your into your main dot dart and uh then you can use different themes. Uh, there's about a hundred different themes uh, for text and color or more. Uh, it's quite a long list and uh, you can go to Google's site to see all the themes that they've created. Um, once you have that, then you, um, in the home attribute, this is where you would set up your future builder. And so what the future builder does is it's really nice because it, it looks at that asynchronous state or connection state and it lets you know when that, that future is complete. So then you can do connection state dot done and that tells you, okay, that future state is done. It has checked to see if it has data or it has an error. So what I did is if it has an error, then I uh, pop 
pop up a, a alert box that says something went wrong. If it comes back with data, it has data I check to see what the data is. If the data comes back that uh, uh, it couldn't find the, the login credentials failed, then I pop up an error message saying that uh, <clears throat> that they're, your, the login credentials failed and try again. If it succeeds, then uh, I accept them as authentic and I pass them in. Now, originally I thought I was going to have to implement OAuth 2. And if you have to implement OAuth 2, it doesn't seem that difficult. What you do is you register uh, your application, you get a client ID, and you get a client secret. Then in your web API, you put your client ID and your client secret in there. And then there's a series of API calls that are made and it authenticates you in. <clears throat> um, I think it's also somewhat similar to the way uh, Active Directory works because there's a, you have to have a client ID and a client secret for Active Directory to work. You put those in, uh, put it into your API, and, and then it, it's, it works. And uh, and then you get uh, you have you have a refresh token and then you have an access token. Uh, the refresh token, after a certain amount of time, you have a start and an end time on that token. And uh, once it expires, then it will throw a 401 error, and then you re you retransmit that access token or refresh token, and then it'll give you a new token back and, uh, and then you can continue on working. And then your web API you have authorized and so without that token being passed in the or bearer token being passed in the uh, uh, header then uh, uh, the authorization will not be valid and it won't let you uh, into the controller. So the security is one of those areas that can really take a lot of time um, if you don't know what you're doing. And so it's always helpful to talk to someone who knows security. I, I talked to one of my friends and he knows security really well. And, and uh, we walked through the security flow for the OAuth authentication and then I was able to understand it but I didn't have to use it well the other thing this week that I did is uh, I spent a lot of time on statistical learning and uh, I'm now at uh, the point of understanding hypothesis testing but I, as I mentioned before I've been kind of fascinated if if the junk bond market can be is normally distributed and I concluded that it's not normally distributed. And pr the prediction of when the next big default would be about between eight to 10 years. And so the last one was in 2012. And so somewhere between 2020 and 2022, we should see a huge uh, number of companies default on the junk bond market. And, and as I said before, that affects commercial paper, real estate, uh, money markets, mutual funds, pensions, stock market, 
so there's these these corrections that occur and then there's uh, sell-offs and then and then uh, as companies liquidate bankrupt go out of business then the new cycle starts in and as new innovations and companies emerge so it's interesting to see you know we live in a time of a lot of chaotic turnover uh, companies are being acquired by other companies uh, and so there's in 2008 we saw larger companies that merged with smaller merged uh, smaller companies into their subsidiaries and So there was a lot of buying and merging as companies were to be bought at a discount. So it's almost like the, the company itself was a commodity. It was uh, amazing to watch. And uh, just the, it just shows that uh, a lot of the companies do not have assets in their savings accounts. And so when there are sudden changes in the economy, they have to sell the business and try to, the owners try to capitalize on some of the profits. And then they'll sit on those profits and wait for other opportunities. And as those opportunities arise, and they buy those and, and uh, start the next round of, of growth. And that cycle of, of uh, liquidation and then recapitalization is important as long as it doesn't happen frequently, you know. So in eight to 10 years, it looks like that seems to be somewhat of a, of a cycle. You know, the low interest rates have drove, drove and, uh, driven investors to take higher risk and chasing um, in fixed income. And as a result, there is the, the possibility of default and they have to be looking at these models, uh, thinking about what their potential risk is and their exposure. And, uh, you know, it's not like the hot emerging markets where you have hot money and when something starts to go bad, you can just pull all your money. Um, they have to wait to a certain time of the year and then they can rebalance their portfolios. And so, um, Probably in those in that time period where they have to rebalance the portfolio, that's when you'll start noticing if uh, the markets sense those risks. So I did look at uh, linear regression using polyfill instead of uh, ordinary least square algorithm OLS, and it was kind of interesting because that's a linear equation. It has a slope and it has a y-intercept. And so in the, in the examples that we did, he said, you know, you must begin to start thinking probabilistic. And probabilistic thinking means um, where they did bootstrapping. And what bootstrapping is, is it's a resampling technique. And, uh, I found that kind of interesting. I, I, at first, I've, I've never done resampling before, but uh, it kind of made sense because if you have your data 
but then your data comes in at a certain sequence and it has a certain range. Um, obviously, if you have more data and there's more outliers to your data, then that would change your story. But if you're if you had you know a good sample of data and you're comfortable with that, and then you wanted to see you know what an optimum parameter was, then you would take and and find that optimum parameter whether it's the mean, standard deviation, variance, and uh, and then uh, run through. A number of resamples. Let's say you take 50 resamples, and then you average it out, and then you look at that linear regression. It would show you all the possible paths um, in that data based on random sampling. Um, you could also look at it from the standpoint of the ECFD, where you take the distribution and you look at the probability distributions uh, from least to greatest and then see how the probabilities vary and um, and then that you could you could draw that on a, on a plot and it would then give you an idea of how close you are in terms of the range of, of, of that those parameters and uh, found that kind of interesting because I could see where if you could get kind of a range or a feel for uh, the way your data's optimum parameters are, that would tell you the variance levels, lower and upper bands that you want to uh, be expecting, your confidence intervals. So you could uh, uh, then put it into a histogram and then you could use your, your uh, percentile of 2.7 and 95, 7.5, and that would then, that band would become your confidence interval. So it, it was kind of interesting statistical thinking, you know, um, where I've been wondering if you can in a day and age where we're collecting lots of data, that if you have can form the right hypothesis question, then you can start building different data models in Python to test the, those hypotheses and uh, those conclusions and see if statistically you can find data to support you. So I think that's a new thing for the internet. That's going to be a new a new sector of internet, um, especially in the era of AI, where instead of just asking, doing searches by keyword or sentences, that uh, now you're gonna wanna see people solving problems. You're gonna wanna see the Python code that tells you what the trend is. So if the news says one thing, you know, they could say, well, we think that junk bonds are going to um, rise this year in 2020. You should be able to go out and get all the high-grade investment bond data 
look at the default rates per month for the last uh, 30 years, or let's see, it was 1984 when it started. So yeah, so look from 1984 forward to 2020, and uh, and then get your your uh, peaks, which there were three of them that occurred, and they're about eight to ten years in their interval from 1984 and um, then run it through uh, your ECDF and for the normal and the theoretical see if there's a normal distribution if there's no normal distribution maybe what you could do then is feed that into a deep learning net and see if you can find the function that's the part that I find really fascinating because I read a book called Why Stock Markets Crash and in that book he had a uh, polynomial curve fitting function that if you knew the right coefficients you could predict when the system was going to crash but you had to know the day that it was going to crash and then the curve had to fit the profile of the polynomial but it accurately predicted um, what the stock market was going to do prior to crash. And so he fed that into a number of different uh, crashes that occurred. And then using the polynomial coefficient, he was able to closely match what the stock market had been doing. Uh, and there was there was basically equilibrium that occurred at some point where the market said consensus wise that things are overvalued and there's a problem and there was a sell-off that occurred and so there were we we want to think that uh, that uh, these these type of things are unknown because it's too complex but yet, we can find polynomial or nonlinear functions that approximate future behavior. So that's one of the things that was really interesting about Serpinski's algorithm, is that he was able to model the height of a flame uh, eight cycles into the future. And so that was a really amazing feat that the algorithm could find signal that could accurately predict into the future. So that, that leads me to think, well, if neural nets can find function, could there be a function that would accurately predict a certain distance into the future before uh, chaos or small changes in the direction of that function cause deviation or divergence and uh, and so that that became uh, I noticed that the government was spending a lot of money on studying the Ser Serapinski algorithm for making predictions like things like uh, flood directions you know what areas could flood um, areas where there might be forest fires areas where 
things that uh, were very dynamic could affect uh, government by requesting government funding. And so there was quite a bit of research that was done in that Serapinski algorithm. Um, and and when, you, when I recall, I remember I did a Serapinski fractal. And I'm, I'm wondering uh, if there is a connection there between fractals, chaos, and complexity theory. Now, there was a book that I read a long time ago that said that there is a connection and they felt that uh, that there would be a discipline built that would study these algorithms in more detail. So that'd be something I'd be interested in finding and reading about uh, if uh, there had been work more in the fractals. You know, you look at fractals and they're these simple algorithms. They have different equations, but some of them are, are very simple rules. And uh, I had this one book on computer graphics and he was a professor from some university. I can't remember what the university is now. But he had uh, figured out a number of different fractals. So I took my students and we did the dragon fractal, which was kind of cool. We did uh, tree structures done with fractals. We did the famous Mendelbrot fractal. And, and the Mendelbrot was more of an equation. Uh, these other fractals were rules. And so it would tell you, you know, go left, go right, go there was a certain pattern of going left and right that you followed and then it, uh, it you just run the almost like a turtle program with uh, keep a stack and it was keeping track of the last X, X and Y position and, uh, and then it was running this algorithm for uh, building the fractal. And I think sometimes, uh, I think we had to use a stack. I'd have to go look in the code again, but I think we had to use a stack or a, a linked list to pop off certain nodes to get back to a certain junction node, and then we would continue down that junction node uh, following the algorithm. And it, and it basically built the fractal. So the recursion was an important aspect to building Fractals and all recursion can be uh, simulated inside of trees. So we're using trees to simulate the uh, recurse recursive nature of the fractal tree. A lot of fun. But uh, going back to you know the significance of fractals. Uh, so fractals, since they have reoccurring pattern and they seem to be predictable. It kind of makes me wonder if uh, that uh, if you look at cellular automa by Wolfram Alpha or Wolfram Stephen Wolfram and his claim of ability to program everything, if those uh, small little algorithms can produce complex structures. Simple algorithms can produce complex structures. 
Could it be that also fractals and complex structures could explain things that are going to happen in time? But that would be uh, something that would be very interesting to know. Suppose that you had a quantum computer that could do, you know, you know we can't do infinite number of calculations, but a very large number of calculations. And that you have these algorithms that look further into the future. How far into the future could a quantum computer look? And that would be an interesting question to ask. And if that were possible, then the second thing would be also true, that the quantum sim simulation could be reality. So that would be even stranger that you're running a simulation, but that simulation is forming a new reality. So that would uh, definitely be a difference in the way we think now versus what could happen in the future with quantum machines. But uh, those are just uh, some uh, some statements that I read on, on quantum machines by some different thinkers about what a quantum computer would mean and what, what a quantum simulation would mean. The reason why the quantum simulation matches to the quantum computer is because quantum computers operate on qubits and those qubits um, have to be isolated and have to be run in a very cold environment. And so whatever they're doing um, is their reality. <laughs> so uh, there can be no interaction with anything other than what they're doing. Otherwise, uh, they, they can lose their state their, and they become uh, less reliable. Okay, so machine learning, you know, it's uh, interesting. I haven't heard uh, too much on any breakthroughs in it. Uh, it would be very fascinating to see if we could get some machine learning that was more visual. And the reason I say that is a lot of times when I'm working with neural nets, um, you can grab the layer and you can look at the weights and then you can hand calculate what the the weights to the next layer and the buy and add in your bias and you can predict what the outcomes are going to be and those that's kind of, that's a, a great but it's uh would be easier and more useful to be able to see visually what the neurons are doing and then have a expert system or some sort of um, software help advise you on how to change the topology of the network to get better answers. You know, the thing about neural nets is they don't automatically reconfigure to uh, work to get a, a goal. They they depend on. They depend on the designer to know what the goal is, to find the proper parameters, to cross-validate, to find the right features, to gather the data, 
it's not a dynamic system. It's basically a very task-oriented system. And uh, it seems to me that in order for neural nets to become more widespread, they have to uh, have a, a dynamic, dynamic interface that allows their configurations to change to adapt to new environments and new in inputs. Well, you know, it's Corona's run its course and uh, life has to return back to normal. I just wish more people would be friendly again. It just feels like everyone's living in a box. It's, it's very uncomfortable. We went out to dinner last night and, you know, we're, we sit in there and everyone kind of stays to himself. They don't talk to each other. You know, it, it wasn't a very happy experience. People weren't laughing. They just sat there and ate their food very somber. And, um, and I was thinking, we got to get back to the world of living, you know, producing, creating. We have, we have mortgages to pay. We have to pay for those. We have debts that we have to pay off. And we can't just stop living. And it's really created this world of antisocial behavior where people are afraid to talk to people. They don't talk to people they don't have a reason to talk to them, they don't. And, uh, you know, even in the workplace, uh, I don't feel that, you know, we got kind of a, is, if it's safe, it's safe, you know. And, uh, you know, we don't worry, talk to people, interact with them. And uh, I do keep my work area wiped down. I take my preemptive measures by drinking uh, boiled lemon and you know I, I pray every day that I don't get this uh, disease and uh, but still I have to keep on living you know you can't be like uh, living in a box it's uh, such a an interesting world that we live in us our behavior stuff so much well and I, and I guess if you ask me where will uh, can machine learning be applied that might be useful one area that I've been kind of toying around with and talking to people but not gaining very much interest is analyzing government data there is a vast amount of government data that uh, is available for public domain you can access it and uh, for whatever reason and download it and and run analysis uh, labor statistics are available you can get information on jobs uh, you can see different data that's been collected by the government and made available to the public that can be accessed by API but one thing that I find in um, amazing is that it's not in a CSV format or easy usage. You know, I would have liked to have seen things segmented up into CSVs and being able to just grab it and utilize it. 
Instead, they have complex APIs where you got to register and get, you know, an API key, and then you got to know how to extract your data from the API, and then they have specs on that. And then once you get the data, uh, it's not in a always in a form that you need it for doing analysis. So then you have to reshape your data using pandas and aggregate it and then combine it and then and then you can model it. So there's a lot of work before you can even start to use the data. And I was thinking that transformation process might be a market where you could take some of this data that the government's providing model it and then uh, uh, try and sell those models and um, because there's going to be someone or some company out there that wants to know that information but doesn't want to hire a data scientist to do all that formation they just want to have a easy to use interface that they can gain access to that they can ask different questions to that will produce answers and I, and I was thinking well why why aren't more companies doing that you know why aren't more think tanks doing that and I wonder if they are they might be doing that but for other reasons than we know and so um, but yet the data is there, so they're definitely, you know, supply. So now, what could you do with that supply? It'd be interesting, and it'd also be interesting to see if the government puts out for bid piecewise work that says, okay, well, we've got this new data source, and we need, you know, we need uh, Tableau visualizations for it, and um, we're looking for. Some want to do these this type of work and they just put out a bid and then people go in and place a bid for the work and then if they get it they, they start working on it but it's uh, it's very interesting when you think about that process and and the way the government works you know I've wanted to look at that possibility of doing bids work but it's always intimidating because it doesn't seem very intuitive how you would qualify you know do you have where do you go where's the job boards how do you apply I mean if if there was a company that would simplify this and make it very easy where you could just register come in and get a piece of work put a bid price on it and go do the work uh, and you could make some money that would be a service that would be worth utilizing but I don't see those and I, and I don't know why but maybe it's because the government isn't a, a, a big customer but yet uh, it would seem like that they're because of the size of government that they would be a good customer but yet the market doesn't seem to be interested in them. And uh, they're more interested in social media, which doesn't pay. Social media doesn't pay. 
uh, Facebook doesn't pay you to make comments on social media. Google doesn't pay. And what do they pay for? Well, they pay for content. And they don't pay you for your direct content. They pay you for viewers that are utilizing your content so it's attracting an audience. And then they pay for advertisements that are being posted to those customers. So they're, they're an advertising company. And so you become the content for which people are attracted to that are driving their advertisement models. And uh, so then, you know, I, I, I said also in one of my po- a previous uh, podcasts that I think the area of utilities is an area where AI could be used to assess potential risk of failure. And see, the, and risk of failure is always a statistical thing. Just like, you know, I were analyzing the junk bond market, you could analyze old equipment. That equipment has a certain lifespan and uh, it has a certain maintenance cycle. And if, you know, if there's uh, failure to keep certain maintenance cycles, there's an increased probability of failure. Just like if you're driving a car and you don't change the oil or you don't change the transmission fluids, at some point there's a possibility that you could end up with a part failure. And uh, so, you know, if if you're following the maintenance schedules and you're doing the inspections, then there's less of a chance that that failure will occur and you know you can extend the life of your product. And and so utilities seem like an area where you've got older equipment and it has to be uh, up all the time. That you could analyze it from the standpoint of how it's being affected by the weather, how the equipment's being affected by temperature. Um, how maintenance cycles affect the usage of the equipment. And also, you know, there's things like age, like the age of the tele, uh, power lines. Like sometimes there's, you, you, when you're driving along, you see power lines that are kind of leaning over. And, you know, is that an indication that they're going to start breaking, they're going to get old, and, and uh, you know, high winds can cause the, the power line to break. Or in some cases, if there's lots of ice, you know, if there's a, a particularly cold winter and lots of ice on the power lines, a lot of weight that's on those lines, how does it affect, the, how does it affect them in terms of points of breaking? snap? Do they uh, do you have maintenance crews that are having to repair a certain area? And then if you if they are, you see red areas where lots of maintenance is occurring is that suggest that something systemic might need to be addressed there where you might have to put in a whole new line set of lines. 
or is this going to be very, very small uh, adjustments? And I imagine with business, because they like to do things, keep costs down, that it would just be minor adjustments. You know, go out and make this fix, and then once it's up and working, we don't really look at the probability of failure in the whole system. We're just looking at just minute adjustments. So just a series of uh, constant adjustments and repairs and, you know, keeping staff available and trained. Um, I know near me there's a lineman school where you learn how to go up and fix the lines and uh, learn about electricity. So there's a you know, new talent that's coming on board, old talent that's retiring. So th those are, you know, retention might be a risk factor that you could utilize AI in. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, just looking around, looking at things that uh, might be useful is, is important. Uh, it's like the post-it note. You know, he, he just realized that a lot of people were writing notes on paper and taping it up onto their computers or whatever. And, and so he came up with the idea of a little bit of adhesive on a piece of paper. And uh, that became so widespread. It, was a, it had a low entry. It had high usability. And that's where AI needs to move, is to find areas where it can be very useful for a low cost. One is, uh, I keep thinking, is going to be at the endpoints. You know, very cheap uh, devices, IoT devices that don't cost much, have low power consumption, could be powered by uh, wire or could be powered by solar. And they have machine learning algorithms on in the chip and they're connected to the internet. So the, you know they can do different tasks. They can learn different things. They can perform, they can do particular different tasks and analyze different patterns and do a variety of of different tasks on the edge. And maybe it's adaptive. It can learn to do different things. Uh, there was an article that was I read about translations and how they were using. Google was using AI um, to do translation and they were using like English so between the languages but then they realized that the machine didn't need to use uh, English that it could create its own meta language so it created a kind of a universal language for translating one language into another and then so now you have the emergence of a new language that was generated by the machine. And what would be the effect or usefulness of that new language? Uh, you know, and so AI is going to be creating new products, new, uh, new levels of functionality that don't exist today. And AI could be everywhere, 
if it could be on the on cheap devices on the edge. And I, you know, I saw an, uh, an article just recently uh, talking about cloud on a chip. So then you got these little teeny uh, machines that are basically the size of your thumb, or you know, maybe even the size of your hand. It depends, but they're not very big, and they have the power of a cloud. And uh, explain that level of sophistication in terms of Moore's law, where they could do so much. And uh, uh, so that's that's really kind of interesting. But you can see the move towards individuals that are understandable in firmware and AI want to, uh, uh, you know, add more functionality or logic, but the logic has to be created by the machine, not the person. So then you can have machines creating lots of logic on the edge. And, uh, and maybe that, that logic is collected in the central server somewhere and then possibly used in the future because a shortage is not data anymore the shortage is logic